And good morning. Welcome to Green Left Radio on 3CR. 3CR, and you have Jacob and Zane in the studio this morning. Aloha. Um, all right. Well, uh, as is important to do each week, I think we should acknowledge that we're coming at you from the 3CR studios on <coughs> Smith Street, Collingwood, and... Um, you're listening to us probably, and you're certainly, we're broadcasting to you from the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And Sovereignty was never ceded and always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Here, here. Okay, um, I guess uh, in terms of the most headline um, news that's um, kind of currently happening, um, I might read out this statement later, but I just give you the context. Um, just last night, um, there was a protest against um, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Nanta Netanyahu, Netanyahu yeah. um, who had just arrived, who has arrived in Sydney for a four-day visit. Um, so there was a uh, a protest organised against him, you know, because of his you know his role in kind of like the continued abuses and dispossession of Palestinian people on Palestinian land, um, and so that that's that was a protest that happened um, last night in Sydney Town Hall. Haven't heard of a full report back, but from pictures on social media, you know, it got a great sort of response, a great representation from different activists, um, the Palestinian community and the Jewish community, and on the subject of. Um, on that subject, um, the Jews Against the co- Occupation um, released this statement um, that I think I, it's appropriate that I should read out on February 21st. Um, um, Jews Against the Occupation are strongly opposed to the red carpet welcome being given by the Australian government in opposition to the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, we join in with the 60 prominent Australians and over 600 um, Jewish Australians and supporters who have spoken out against this visit. Netanyahu is Prime Minister of a state which has con- consistently defiled international law by seizing land under occupation, driving out and dispossessing the Palestinian inhabitants, uh, demolishing their homes and farmlands to enable them to be taken over by Jewish Israelis. The daily restrictions on freedom of movement of the Palestinians make economic life, effective health care and education near to possible. The ongoing siege and blockade of Gaza with periodic invasions and massacres by the Israeli Defence Forces and miles to war crimes. The refusal to address even minimum legitimate expectations of the Palestinians while accelerating colonial dispossession and construction of the West Bank and, and Jerusalem has sabotaged any possibility of a peace process. Um, Israel's annexation of a large part of the West Bank, if not at all, of all of it looks likely. Netanyahu's closeness to the newly elected President of the United States, Donald Trump, is a cause for serious concern. His apparent indifference to the anti-Semitism and Islamophobia promoted by the US government casts serious doubts on Netanyahu's support for Jews worldwide. Australia should not give comfort um, and ends here. Australia should not give comfort to a man responsible for such lawlessness and inhumanity. Hmm. Um, just some further kind of commentary on Netanyahu's visit. Um, Malcolm Turnbull has sort of been on the record that you know he that he stands with Israel, um, ba- and basically he condemns you know UN's sort of one-sided you know condemnations of Israel. So that's um, yeah, that's basically 
what we would normally expect from the Australian government. Um, although there has been, there is sort of some, um, there's talk from former Labor ministers, like I think Bob Hawke, who, mm. who's mm. arguing that, um, and Kevin Rudd, and Kevin Rudd that's arguing that, you know, Palestine should be granted statehood. So that's a bit of a change, although it could be reflective of, you know, the social, the growing, you know, um, Palestinian, um, rights, um, growing movement for justice for Palestine. Um, because, mm. you know, they never really said anything back when they were in power. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot easier to say stuff once you're no longer the prime minister. Yeah. It's funny, right? Okay. Um, and, uh, it's been interesting that, uh, Michael Danby came out. I think it was on Wednesday. Um, Minister for Melbourne Ports, notorious Labor right. Um, um, not a very pleasant person. And he came out and he attacked, uh, those in the Labor Party that were calling for recognition of Palestinian statehood. And then Netanyahu himself said, uh, so what did he say? Something like, uh, if my question is, if we recognize Palestine as a state, what sort of state would that be? A state that was focused on the destruction of Israel? Mm. And so like, well, you're the head of a state that's focused on the destruction of Palestine. And you think that like, if, if being focused on the destruction of a neighboring country means you shouldn't be allowed to be a state, then by rights, Israel, Israel has no right to be a state. Be to be a state because that's clearly the game plan for Israel is to continue expanding into the remaining pockets of Palestine that are under Palestinian control. Mm. So just the, the breathtaking, and, and he said it without a hint of irony as well. Mm. It's, it's just... Um, on that subject, um, there was a, also a protest last Saturday um, in Melbourne, actually. They attracted quite a good um, range of people, um, you know, protesting at Netanyahu's visit. And, you know, there's a very sort of positive sort of message around, you know, justice for Palestine. Um, and, yeah, that's pretty much all really say. There were some great speakers and um, hopefully the the protests continue and the, Palis- um, the Palestinian movement, um, the justice for Palestine Palestine movement sort of grows and gets back into, builds some back some momentum and we hope to see more protests, more demonstrations, more public forums and, um, there is actually, just to flag this, there is, um, the, the possibility of, uh, a BDS conference, um, happening in Australia this year, um, which would hope, which I guess the aim would be to bring together a lot of the, uh, groups, um, that support BDS, um, BDS and the main kind of activist groups that are kind of organizing around it. So there should be, that should be a good conference to look out for and we'll be sure to publicize it in the activist calendar if it is in Victoria. Yeah, nice. Oh, that's that's good to see. All right, what else is new? Were you at uh, at White Night? Ah, yes. Um, I was at that protest uh, all night, actually. Yeah, the, yeah. The, um, just for good information, there was a um against uh in relation to the campaign against the the homeless ban, the criminalisation of homelessness by Robert Doyle and the Melbourne City Council. Um, there was a action organised at um the Melbourne State Library during White Night. 
and um, I was part of that. And um, having you know been there for 11 hours, I came feeling very positive about it. I mean, there were only like a hundred or so protesters really driving it, but it sort of ended up being basically an all-night protest with you know chants such as you know um, Melbourne City is for all. Um, not just for Town Hall. Um, there were some very powerful speeches by a number of the uh, members from the community. Um, and there was also a, lot, a number of homeless people who attended and also spoke out you know, about their experiences of being homeless and also condemning um, Robert Doyle's laws. And there was also, this was also because White Knight attracts such a large audience. It was a, a real great opportunity to you know, get a big, get an audience. Um, so we had actually... At any one moment, there was actually at least 500 to 600 poly people hanging around the State Library who were all witnessing our action. Um, and there was also an amazing thing that happened where we got, um, I think so, I forgot the name of the company. It would be great if I remembered because it would be good to give them proper, proper credit. Um, but they managed to go get a projector set up and projected no homeless ban um, onto the State Library, which was mm. um, brilliant. Um, so, yeah... We get managed, and there was um, a lot of. We managed to get um, over two thousand to three thousand signatures on the petition, which indicates, you know, that there's a lot of support for this campaign. Um, mm. You know, people, you know, people just knew about what was actually happening. I think most people would be outraged. There was only like one person who basically said, "Oh, just get a job." That's some conservative right winner who just sort of walked past and said that. But otherwise, most, the majority of people were very supportive of our protests. Um, in terms of the mainstream um, coverage, there was actually a lot of media there. Um, so we got Channel 7, I think, Late Line and Channel 9, Sky News was there. And generally, the, the footage was, um, the coverage was quite, was not entirely positive, Reasonable. Um, probably the best coverage was found in the Guardian, which probably had the most politically, um, um, had the most, which really sort of drew out the politics of the event. Mm. Whereas the Herald Sun, like, um, tried to sort of say that the the protest was a failure because it only attracted 50 people. Um, by contrast, the Age said that you know we um, made a point that we were very successful in getting our message out because there was such a large audience, you know, to draw on. Mm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the campaign is um, still continuing. Um, they're um, organising many um, every Thursday at the Shrades Hall, um, and our next action is going to be a sleep out on Friday, the fourth of Ma- um, wait, Friday is the fourth of March, or is that the third? Third. Ah, yes, Friday, the third of March. Um, it'll be at four p.m. Probably going until midnight, and it'll be a similar action to. Um, to um, the one during White Night, but it'll be the situ- um, the sort of um, situation. Um, it'll be different location. It'll be at Town Hall. What we're planning is to have a big sort of sleep out outside mm. um, yeah, um, Town Hall. We're encouraging you know people to get their sleeping bags and get it. Um, get people um, you know sleep out on on Melbourne Town Hall to create sort of this sort of scene. Mm. Um, that should attract a lot. A lot of passbys will probably see it. Um, we're also um, encouraging you know people to you know to bring food, um, and so we can have like a big feast and eat out. And so it'll be like sleep out, eat out, speak out. And there'll be speakers um, from the community speaking out against these laws. Um, one of the reasons why we're encouraging people to and groups, organisations especially, to bring food is. 
is um, basically one one part of these um, of these laws um, that's been put forward by the council um, is um, that um, is that they're trying to discourage people. There's going to be an education campaign to discourage people from giving food to the homeless, which is just a complete outrage. I mean. It's understandable that you know we there's education campaigns to discourage people from giving food to pigeons or birds because you know we shouldn't giving, mm. bird, giving bread to say a pigeon or or seagull is actually bad for their health because it means they're not they're right. not getting the food that they should be getting yeah. and, it, and it encourages them but this is like oh, don't feed the homeless it encourages them. Yeah, we're trying to keep them. It's away like from it's it. like it's yeah. Well, it's sort of based. What I'm the point I was trying to make by mentioning the pigeons gross. is we're sent the government, the local council and the government is essentially trying to um trying to make you um, make it that the homeless people are like animals making. Yeah. So they're using a similar kind of logic um to why you shouldn't feed the birds, except there's actually logical sense in that, whereas there's absolutely none in this. It's just demonization of you know some of the most vulnerable people in society hmm. um, and I guess another aspect to the campaign that's kind of right is where is the Melbourne City Council has opened up these laws they've passed but they open up to a community consultation period so right now if you go to the Melbourne City Council website um, you can probably find the link if you go on the pay- Facebook page no homeless ban in Melbourne um, hashtag no home thing but basically there, um, it's open up to a community consultation process, and so um, people from the community are open to make submissions um, to the Melbourne City Council about why you think these new laws are completely wrong and why they should they they should be abolished. Mm. Um, and you can even make it so you'll be you'll be pre- you'll be able to present your 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 piece and opinion at, right on the floor and for the Melbourne City Council. And I think the neck the the meeting will be coming around towards the end of March. I don't have the exact date, but it's somewhere around that time. So that's why the campaigns get continue to do lots um, to do actions like the ones we saw um, at the Melbourne um, at the White Night, and um, to put up the pressure on the politicians and to make get more people involved, to make more people aware of it. And so the more people that are aware, we'll be able to put the pressure on the government, you know, to abolish these laws altogether. Yeah, we could. Yeah, in, um, in New South Wales, there's, back when I was campaigning to stop the fourth coal terminal in Newcastle, uh, there was a lot of people campaigning against individual coal mines up in the Hunter Valley. And, yeah, that was always the strategy, yeah, is get, get as many people as you can to sign up to give a presentation to the committee and then, uh, yeah, bombard them. So in Newcastle, we ended up... The, oh, I think the pack went for three days, Um listening to people's presentations so yeah it'd be good to do the same thing in melbourne and just flood them with heaps of people uh i, I was just thinking then about a presentation i might make i, I would say well how about you pass a law to make any apartment that's left empty in docklands available for homeless people mm-hmm. could uh, solve the problem overnight there's yeah. a lot of empty units here um, oh yeah, we're living in this. We're living in it in the time in Melbourne right now. You know, we're living in this time where basically the interests of private developers are. Well, this is happening all around Melbourne, mostly the inner city suburbs, where the interests of private developers are 
prioritise over, you know, everyday people. Mm. Um, and, you know, they, one of the things about this campaign, it's building over, you know, the work that was done last year in Bendigo Street, you know, that how we occupied, how these houses were occupied by activists um, and calling for these houses to be turned into public housing and because that's really the, the mm. solution to homelessness is not to, you know, push them aside and um, say, you know, nothing to see here, um, but to actually, you know, give them, you know, public housing and also give so give social support um, and mm. better social support services. Good morning. Um, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio on A55 AM. It is Friday the 24th of Feb. Uh, it's 19 minutes past 7 this morning. Right. So I guess it's um, time for some news from um, the latest issue of Green Left Weekly. Um, this is our, our article I'm going to talk about in relation to sort of like a more sort of scaremongering campaign that happened um, over Facebook. Um, some people here, listeners here, might have seen this status shared around, mm-hmm. uh, it, which was downright cringeworthy and outright racist. Um, but um, the article opens here, you know, in Melton, an outer western suburb of Melbourne, Shane Gillard, a man with links to the far-right group, you know, Social Soldiers of Odin, um, used Facebook to ba- blame Sudanese thugs for a carjacking that supposedly happened um, on February 9th. But, you know, what had actually... <laughs> however, as police reports um, of the incident surface, you know, the truth was rather different. Um, there was no Sudanese immigrants were involved, but basically it was two men that had a violent operation in a car park before the offender of Caucasian appearance stole the other's car. Um, prior to this, you know, this police report, and the unfortunate thing is um, Gillard's fabricated version of these events, which, you know, blamed Sudanese immigrants, was, you know, shared more than 3,000 times on Facebook, which is probably one of the scariest kind of things that, you know, a lot, you know, a lot of, you know, a number of people who probably shared this probably weren't, you know, racist in the slightest, which is, so it's just basically how susceptible um, Mm. people are. Um, Because, yeah, actually, even someone, uh, a friend of mine on Facebook actually shared this story at one point, um, although I was quick to question and say, you know, what's the evidence for this? Because, um, you know, one of, the, one of the messages in this Facebook status that was shared around was that, you know, time to start arming yourselves as people, as you or your loved one could be next. And, of course, um, this elaborate account, you know, this fantasy brawl um, between the supposed victim and the imaginary car stealing students and with the core, we can take this into our own hands and take these folks off the streets ourselves in groups and basically there was like this appeal to the Prime Minister to start deporting the families of these people before you have rights in the street and of course the, the fictional story as I said in Cape 4 was shared widely um, it was shared on a local community Facebook page um, and discussed in various forms and many racists um, expressing support for Gillard's sentence while others challenged the unlikely, unlikely story and the lack of collaborating evidence um, on Gillard's own war, his daughter Christy Gillard wrote, Yes, I feel your anger, Dad, before advertising the soldiers of 
Odin Facebook page, of which she is an editor. Soldiers of Odin is a small, you know, to explain it to listeners, um, Soldiers of Odin is a small far-right group who organises intimidating public street patrols and take their name from similar fascist groups in Europe and elsewhere. Um, the Crime Watch Melton Facebook page um, posted an account of the actual incident explaining we've had a number of people blame this on our Sudanese community, including a private message of relaying a screenshot from a Facebook user, Shane Gillard. A look into Shane's um, background told us he is a One Nation member and seems to focus his post on, you know, basically racism towards black people and Muslims. Mm. Um, while the story obviously hit a uh, chord with many players, a few later expressed their regret at sharing it. Some comments under the crime watch including shared this post seems I was caught out. I too was suckered into thinking this particular incident was caused by Sudanese. Um, you know, this indictment to, you know, on the, con- um, the article sort of says here, you know, these indictments to violence, you know, can have, you know, far frightening consequences. Um, you know, there was, there's a case of this um, Melbourne far-right activist, um, Philip Gray, who's currently awaiting trial, who's accused of planning to bomb the offices of the Socialist Alliance. And the Melbourne Anarchist Club. Yeah. And um, there was a, another case, a man with white supremacist Nazi views was arrested in Sydney on firearm charges, who was reportedly planning a mass shooting at a shop centre. And, of course, these individuals are connected um, in person or online to the web of far-right conspiracy theories and racist propaganda. Um, and, of course, but then there's... the, the there's um, This is the last point, and I was almost going to make this point without realising that's actually in the article. But the, one of the things um, that has to be said about, you know, the this sort of incident is actually kind of, like, legitimised by the mainstream media. I mean, mean, you know, as the article here ends here, um, you know, there's this this vilification of Sudanese youth that's all in the Herald Sun. In fact, there was actually apparently some article, uh, something incident that happened during White Night, um, which um, uh, activists are still sort of researching a bit more um, about, you know, some apparent you know, right between, fight between a Sudanese gang or something, and we don't even know if, um, because, you know, according to various media, police and politicians, there's a crime wave by Sudanese youth in Melbourne, you know, um, and, you know, the African Australians convicted of crime are being targeted for deportation. And, of course, the police union is demanding that these be extended to include minors. However, you know, the crime statistics show that this crime wave is as fictionous as Gillard's Facebook posts. Hmm. Um, and so that's where the article ends there. But, yeah, it's just that um, we've... Um, well, I think it's spot on. The police are feeding this hysteria by calling for these special rights to deport people. Yeah. And you've got these daily uh, articles about the, ooh, the scary apex gang in the, in the Herald Scum. And that is absolutely the context in which these soldiers of Oda go yeah. and have their little pogrom and try and stir up a, a vigilante mm. gang in, in Melton. Yeah. Um, just on the topic of... Um, we ha- it's not really something that's what well, is sort of relevant. Um, that far... The, the, the spokesperson for the alternative right... Milo's... How do you pronounce his last name? Milo Yiannopoulos, which I understand is not his... Uh, Milo's Yiannopoulos. He, he changed his name. Yeah, I think he did it to make himself sound more exotic or something. Um, Milo's Yiannopoulos. So basically, um, 
he this happened all in a span of last a few days ago last week. Um, but basically, Miles Yorfin um, said something on a radio station, probably just like this, where he essentially expressed some support for pedophilia. Um, although I never really looked in comments, but basically the consequence is what matters. Um, and as a consequence, he has been disinvited um, from speaking at a conservative conference um, and he's um, effectively resigned from the far-right publication in America, Breitbart. Breitbart. Yeah, whatever. I don't want to give it any attention. He's just been... He's resigned from this far dangerous far-right media publication. That's all mm. I'll say. Um, and this also comes in the context of, um, in the United States, he's been the subject of a lot of collective action against him, of camp, of activists on campuses protesting against his ideas. Mm. Um, his ideas have a lot in common with, you know, Reclaim Australia. Mm. Um, and, you know, he, he basically, you know, he's, promotes openly Islamophobic ideas, um, promotes transphobia, promotes homophobia despite being gay himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hates he, feminists. Hates feminists. Um, and he's been, he was essentially, another thing for listeners to be aware of, he was essentially banned from Twitter for basically harassing, you know, a trans woman. And so he wrote, and um, the fact that he had his going too far for even conservative right-wingers, I guess is a good sign in a sense that his platform is increasingly being limited. Um, so that's, that's all, um, that's sort of, I would mention that since we're talking about far-right, um, but that's, that's kind of like the case of the far-right in um, the United States. Mm. Yeah, no, that's good. And they, they, those protests at, um, I think it was UC Berkeley, mm. uh, where Yiannopoulos was going to speak, and there was there was basically a small riot. Like people were shooting fireworks at the building, mm. and there was a very vocal counter protest. Mm. So basically, no platform, Milo Yiannopoulos, and say you're not welcome here. And the context is he um, his his kind of game plan is to name and shame people, beam up photos, and say the names of people whilst he's giving his talk. And pretty much encourage a witch hunt against people who are, might be immigrants, illegal immigrants, or yes. So there, I think there's, uh, um, I think there's pretty compelling argument for having a, a quite a assertive protest like what happened, and I think it's actually laid the uh, laid the foundation for this later sort of uh, attacks on Yiannopoulos. It's drawn a lot of attention to him and his very unsavoury politics. Mm. Yep. Now let's hope um, if he ever comes down to Australia, we'll be first to, you know, to publicise the counter-protests against his appearance. <laughs> I think we've got to mention that we have a quite, we kind of have a string of interviews um, planned for the program. So in um, nine minutes, we're going to be interviewing someone from Amnesty International. Then yeah. following that, Jed... Jed Carney, um, president of the Australian Council of Trade Unions. We'll be coming in, um, well, he'll be calling us in um, at eight, and then we'll be interviewing Gemma Weedle um, to talk about, you know, the private, uh, um, these sort of attacks on renewables that have been coming from the, gov- um, the government. Um, but on the subject of the um, environment, um, I might read out, this is an article from um, Green Left Weekly um, on, you know, the Adani coal mine. And basically, you know, with the title, you know, Land Rights, Not Mining Rights. Um, essentially, what's, um, this article talks about, you know, how 
um, the attorney, um, Pip Henman writes here that the attorney George, um, General George Brandis has moved fast to neutral, neutralise a recent federal court finding that um, all not just native title claimants must agree for an Indigenous land use agreement to be valid. Um, the rule, um, the ruling, um, the February second ruling overturned a ruling in 2010 that decided the opposite. Um, but then basically on my birthday, February 15th, um, Brandis in- introduced the Native Title Amendment, Indigenous Land Use Agreements Bill, 2007, which effectively, you know, if passed in the Senate, would effectively negate the court's um, February 2nd ruling and ignore the law that all Native Title claimants had to sign off on a land use agreement. Um, the bill has gone to a Senate committee, which is due to report on March um, 17th. Um, what is, you know, mining companies and the major parties went into damage control after Justices North, Bark and Mortimer put a $1.3 billion land use settlement between the Nyulga people of southwest Western Australia and the Colin Barrett government into doubt. News.com said the court decision would affect at least um, 126 Indigenous land use agreements covering proposed mines, gas fields and infrastructure. Significantly... Um, because of this, it put, you know, Adani's controversial 22 billion Carmichael coal mine in central Queensland on hold, along with about 40 other proposed and, um, operating mining projects in Queensland. Um, the traditional owners, um, opposing the Carmichael, um, Michael mine said the federal court's decision meant Adani's bid to register an indigenous land use agreement with the Wangan and the Janga Jagalingu peoples was not valid because five of the 12 applicants opposed the deal and refused to sign a year ago. This had the Queensland Resources Council Chief Executive Ian McCallan turning, if I um, ever get the legislative reform, that, oh, this is great, with the federal government, with the Labor opposition through the parliament as quickly as possible, then quite frankly it's p- possible to predict when the that project might proceed, he said on February 13th, um, less than two weeks after the ruling Brandis moved to Nanuwet. Um, I guess just to, um, might, you can read more of the article on the, the Green Left Weekly, but I just go talk a bit about, um, what Pip Henry writes about native title. Um, one of the things about native title has been contentious because it does not give exclusive rights to native title holders. Native title holders do not have the right to control access to or have exclusive rights to use the area in question. There's no automatic right to live in the area, to hunt, get fish, gather food or teach law and custom and country. Importantly too, as a native title tribunal, there can be no native title rights to Mineral, gas, or petroleum recognised under Australian law. In title and sea owned areas, only non-exclusive native title can be recognised. Um, native title, you know, came to existence um, following the High Court's 1992 Marble decision, which recognised that the Merriam people of the Torres Strait Islands held native title were part of their traditional lands. It ended illegal friction of Terra Nullis, landing belonging to no one, which was, you know, first deployed by. Um, a term first deployed by British colonisers. Um, based, um, what Brandis has been attempting to do, you know, with this amendment to this um, native title is, you know, it aims to make it easier for resource companies. It removes the need for all native title holders to sign off on a land use agreement, saying the majority is enough. Um, and really, you know, the men, um, Seeds Indigenous Youth Climate Network described the amendment that George Brandis has um, putting forward as racist, saying it would strip away our land rights to make way for billionaire land, um, billionaire land mining companies. You know, and of course, um, 
you know, this would allow for legitimate land use agreements as native client claimants. Um, uh, uh, Adrian Brown describes um, the rotten deal Adani has been distributing with the Wangan and Jagul people. If the amendment passes in its current form, the government will hand miners like Adani one more tool to divide and conquer Aboriginal people. Um, and, you know, Pip right ends here. You know, the divide and rule tactic works well for those who have economic power against those who have little to none. Despite, you know, these flaws, the Native Title Act, which insisted that all applicants must agree to a land use proposal, must be defended against, you know, its efforts to further weaken laws, even though Native Title is not the ideal. What we, you know, what mm. we want is, you know, uh, um, is, you know, full land rights, you know, for Aboriginal people. But, you know... We haven't quite got there yet. <laughs> hmm. Well, it's a weak and an imperfect thing, but getting rid of native title is nonetheless a, a step backwards. That's yeah. exactly what and, we're seeing. And the fact that you know um, George Brandis and Lib- and you know other probably liberal hardy lackeys are trying to weaken the law just you know to help their their mates in the mining industry you know get more get build more mines and that is. Know what? Probably why you know what, there should be a struggle to defend this. You know, despite its or its limitations. Hmm. Yeah, to be like equal marriage. Hmm. The institution of marriage itself is a bourgeois institution, and it's kind of bollocks. But um, it should be a bourgeois institution that any two people who love each other should have access to. It shouldn't be discrimination enshrined in law. And yeah, native title. Is extremely flawed, but if it's able to help um, Aboriginal people protect their lands, which it obviously is in at, at, at some level, then uh, yeah, it should be defended. Uh, so we have got Stephanie Cousins from Amnesty International on the line, yep. and Amnesty International this week released the International State of the World's Human Rights Report. Uh, yeah. Welcome, Stephanie. Yeah, welcome, Stephanie. Thanks um, for having me. Yeah, I guess um, because I guess this annual report is probably a very broad kind of report, um, the first kind of questions we want to ask is maybe specific and since we're on an Australian crisis, you know, what um, does this, you know, annual report, you know, say about the state of, you know, human rights in um, Australia and um, specifically around, you know, refugees and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders? Yep, sure. Um, so the, refu- the report really highlights some really terrible statistics in Australia with regards to the treatment of um, Indigenous people. Um, it shows that Indigenous young people in particular are 24 times more likely than non-Indigenous kids to be locked up in detention around the country. Um, and this appalling over-representation of um, children in detention means that kids, Indigenous kids are more at risk of the kind of treatment that we saw at the Dondale Detention Centre in Northern Territory last year, where young people were tear-gassed, they were held in solitary confinement for long periods of time, um, they were literally tortured in, in, we believe, in Dylan Voller's case, the young man who was held in a restraint chair. Um, and we're just seeing um, some positive developments, I guess, come from the expose of those abuses in the form of the Royal Commission into youth detention in the Northern Territory. So in a way, it's kind of a mixed story. Um, we're still seeing this terrible over-representation of kids in detention and we're still seeing... Um, you know, we still have really big concerns about the treatment of children in detention in Australia, 
Um, but on the other hand, we have a Royal Commission, which we think will be a really important vehicle for reform. Um, in terms of refugee rights and the treatment of refugees and asylum seekers, there's just a litany of issues there. The treatment of um, people on Nauru and Manus Islands is just appalling. Um, it amounts to a system of abuse. Um, and we have caught called on the Australian government for several years to bring the people held on Manus Islands and Nauru back to Australia because they are incredibly damaged by the treatment um, that they've received by the Australian government um, in those places and really the only answer um, or the quickest the quickest way to get them um, to safety would be to bring them here. Um, failing that, obviously, we hope that this... Um, deal with the United States to send them to the US is an, a viable option as well, but um, time has really run out for these people in terms of their mental health and physical security. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there are some really big challenges for the Australian government. In addition to that, there's also um, the failure of the Australian government to legislate for marriage equality, which we highlight in the report as a big failing on the human rights um, progress for Australia and also some counter-terrorism laws that we believe tip the balance away from human rights in Australia as well. Mm. Um, can you um, uh, elaborate more on the, on you know, why these sort of, uh, against these sort of terror laws by um, the Australian government? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, one in particular um, we highlight are the laws brought in last year by the Australian government to strip citizenship of um, individuals who are dual citizens meant to be dual citizens um, if they have been accused of committing a terrorist act overseas. Our concern with that law is that it's essentially tantamount to trying and sentencing somebody for a crime that we haven't actually proved that they've committed. Um, and our recommendation was that Australia would bring, you know, wait to try such people for um, alleged offences if those offences have enough... Um, evidence to try them in a court of law in Australia, then that's the best way to deal with it. Um, we're really concerned that these laws also are very counterproductive because all it does is kind of push people away instead of actually grappling with the reason why people would go to places like Syria and Iraq to participate in the conflict there. Um, so, yeah, laws like the, the um, citizenship stripping laws are really concerning to us. Also, um, the metadata laws that Australia has put in place and um, are now in full effect, which essentially spy on every single Australian. Um, they don't require a warrant, um, and basically several dozen government agencies are accessing the metadata of all Australians now, um, and we're very concerned that this will creep out into using that data for a range of different things that violate privacy rights. Uh, I guess um, maybe we might move on to um, one sort of um, angle. I want to sort of ask, you know, what other sort of... Sim- do you think there's sort of some similarities between, you know, those laws and, you know, in your report you mentioned um, something here about um, the UK also having, you know, have implement, key, um, implementing these surveillance laws. Can you mm. elaborate more and more? Do you think there's sort of some similarities there um, with what the UK is doing in terms of on civil liberties and surveillance? Yes, absolutely. I mean, Australia's laws are about as intrusive as anyone's, um, but we're definitely seeing this as part of a, a worldwide trend. Um, the UK has gone that way. We've even seen in the United States, I mean, last year after the Orlando um, nightclub shooting, 
Um, there was a big tussle between Apple and the US administration about trying to um, basically crack open um, iPhone security protocols so that the US administration could access information from people's iPhones. Um, and it's interesting because what we've seen is increasingly it's not just the human rights organisations like Amnesty that are speaking out about this from a privacy rights perspective, it's also the technology companies that are standing up and saying, no, we don't want to violate people's privacy in order to um, provide access to this data because there is a real cost to that. Um, and we see that cost in a number of countries around the world um, that are actively surveilling their own citizens for very negative, worrying purposes. For example, to clamp down on freedom of expression, to identify dissidents, to arrest people for politically speaking out in opposition to the government. Um, so this is not a road we want to go down in a free society, is our argument. Um, but there are a number of issues in Australia that we really want to see Australia stepping up and showing consistent leadership on. Um, Australia's now bidding for a seat on the UN Human Rights Council. Um, so we see that as a really big opportunity for Australia to show that it's really serious about improving the human rights situation at home and probably the priorities for that would really be addressing um, the Indigenous rights situation and particularly the over-representation of Indigenous children in detention and protecting refugees actually living up to Australia's international obligations to protect people who have sought um, refuge in this country. I guess um, one of the um, one of the things um, that is you know mentioned in this press release um, that you put out about this annual report is you know you are um, it, it states here that um, blame, hate, and fear you know at the centre of these sort of global political trends around human rights. And um, can you comment a bit more on you know what that means? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we've all seen on the television screen some of the um, narrative of blame, hate and fear um, in the US presidential election campaign. We're now seeing it um, transform really into policy where groups of people, um, vulnerable people in the United States and elsewhere, are being blamed for a whole host of social and economic problems that they actually have no responsibility for. Um, you know, we're seeing seven majority Muslim countries being banned from entry into the United States purely because of this um, false idea that that will contribute to security. There's absolutely no evidence um, that that's the case, but still the Trump administration is um, seeking to do that. Interestingly, the courts um, in the United States are really pushing back on that, and it really does show that I think we can have some faith and hope that the system goes beyond the individuals that are pushing these narratives, um, these narratives of blame and fear. Um, but certainly we have that concern in the United States. We have the same concerns in, concern in Europe, particularly, um, places like Hungary, um, in the UK as well. I mean, we've seen a spike of hate crimes in the UK since the Brexit vote, um, which was very much, you know, the narratives of blame and fear in that campaign were very obvious. Um, and in our own region, the Philippines is a really good example of this. So President Duterte in the Philippines um, has essentially pledged to kill and ensure that drug users and drug pushers are actually murdered um, because of a perception that they have fueled this um, a, a drug problem in the, in the Philippines. Um, the evidence shows that the drug 
um, use rates in the Philippines aren't much higher or they're, they're on par with the rest of Asia. But this has been held up as a major domestic issue in, in that country. And as a result, um, President Duterte's narrative of blame and actually encouraging people to go out, um, the police, but also vigilante groups to go out and kill drug users and pushers has led to 7,000 people being killed since he was elected in May last year. Um, so we are seeing this as a global phenomenon. It's not just the United States, that's for sure. Um, and we really need the Australian government and other governments that are concerned about this trend to be speaking up. Um, and at this point, in our view, Australia is being complacent because they're not speaking up. Um, we're seeing Australia really trying to constructively engage with the United States, but they're not using that engagement to show what Australia is not going to support. Um, and that really is, you know, the task for um, Malcolm Turnbull and Julie Bishop now. Yep. Uh, I guess um, we're going low on time now. I guess, um, do you have any sort of um, final comments um, about this um, annual report by Amnesty International? Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing to keep in mind is while we are seeing some very um, regressive and worrying trends now, um, if you look at the long the long kind of view of history, we are seeing some positive um, and the overall trend is towards the positive. I think the last couple of years, um, you know, that that general positive trend is being um, buckled a little bit. Um, but, you know, if you think about when Amnesty International started, the kinds of issues that we were dealing with, the scale of the use of torture, um, the scale of the use of the death penalty, um, which is really, I mean, the number of countries that um, that actually execute people now is significantly lower lower than we than when we started. It's now, um, you know, a, a very small minority of countries that actually use the death penalty. Um, issues around discrimination, the rights, particularly of gay, lesbian, bi, trans, um, gender, intersex, and um, and queer people in, in this country, but also in a number of countries around the world, um, their rights have definitely been strengthened. So I, I don't want to leave people with a really negative view of human rights, um, the direction that we've gone, because I think um, if you look at the long view, um, we are going the right direction, but we really need leadership, and that's where the Australian government comes into play. We want to see Australia standing up for the values that we all believe in. All right, and Stephanie, how can people uh, check out that latest report? Yeah, absolutely. They can go to our website, so um, amnesty.org.au, and it's right there um, on the front page. And if people want to sign up to our newsletter, they'll get a, they'll get um, a they'll get our newsletter with information that comes, um, including the report. Um, so they can do that from the website as well, so amnesty.org.au. All right. Thank you very much um, for being on our program, Stephanie. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers. Uh, Stephanie Cousins. Okay, so um, we are go- we now it's really we're a bit time constrained here for the time for the activist calendar. Um, we're starting a bit early because we have an interview at 8 a.m. Um, so um, if you're interested in picking up the latest copy of Green Left Weekly, you can do so today um, from 4 to 6 p.m. at the Flin- at Flinders Street Station, outside Flinders Street Station. Um, also happening um, tonight is um, Red Cinema Presents um, Punks for West Papa. It will be a fundraiser screening for Green Left Weekly um, um, on a short documentary on West Papa, and it will be at Resi- the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street. 
Um, there'll be um, there'll be a public forum on at the Bella Union on what does left and right mean. Um, where when when we have to um, cooperate, um, featuring um, academic uh, a lecture by Steb Fisher, um, and this will be this is organised by the New International Bookshop, and yep, it will be at the Bella Union at the Le Trades Hall. Um, as mentioned earlier in the program, uh, next Friday will be a speak out, sleep out, eat out sort of protest against the. Um, new no, the homeless um, criminalization of homelessness, and that will happen at 4 p.m. right outside the town hall um, at the 3rd of March. Um, on Saturday, the 4th of March, there will be uh, a rally against Trump, organized by Australia Says No to Trump. Um, the rally against Trump will be at 1 p.m. at the State Library. Um, and uh, that will, will be a good opportunity to you know to you know demonstrate our opposition against um, Trump, especially in light of you know the Australian government's comp- compliance to it. Um, on the fourth, on also happening on night, if you want to travel up to Geelong, um, George um, Mang, um, um, he's a really good. Um, folk singer from New York. Um, he has been producing labour and protest music for more than 20 years. Um, he's also worked with, you know, folk music legends such as Pete Seeger and Tom Paxson. He will be, um, doing a show with, um, get, um, with Ezekiel Ox, um, on Saturday, the 4th of March, um, at 7 to 10 pm at the Geelong Trades Hall. And, um, also, and there will also be, um, There'll also be a number of um, 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 International Women's Days events um, from the 7th of 8th of um, March. Um, on the 7th of March, there'll be um, feminism in the pub at the Oxford Scholar Hotel, which will feature, um, which will feature, you know, feminist activists such as Celeste Little and Jack's Jackie Brown, and further panels to be announced. Um, there will also be an uh, International Women's Day rally at the Parliament House um, at 5:30 p.m. on the 8th of March, and that will feature um, and that will also feature an after party at the Geelong Trades Hall, uh, not Geelong Trades Hall, the Melbourne Trades Hall at um, at 6:30 p.m. Um, there will also be a Defend and Extend Public Housing rally um, at the 8th of March on a Wednesday at the Parliament Victoria. And then there will also be uh, the last kind of event I'll mention um, before we move on is no, this won't, um, I'm trying to find it is that there will be no, I think that's pretty much it I think in terms of activity that's happening and in terms of activism. Okay. Alrighty, you're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. And we are very glad to have a special guest this morning, uh, Jed Carney, from the, uh, who's the president of the Australian Council of Trade Unions. Welcome, Jed. Thank you for having me. Um, so, Jed, we'll get to the uh, Sunday penalty rate cuts in a moment, but uh, just briefly, the ACTU announced earlier this week that you're campaigning for the establishment of a national independent transition authority mm. to coordinate an orderly transition from coal to renewables. Can you paint a vision of how this authority is envisaged to work and, and what powers it's proposed to have? Well, as everybody knows, the coal-fired power uh, station industry, I guess, the energy industry is in transition. We are moving away from coal and hopefully towards uh, cleaner uh, energy sources. So 
there are a lot of people who will be affected by that. I mean, you know, we, we acknowledge that this is going to happen and that it will be a good thing, but we have to remember that there's hundreds and hundreds of workers who are employed directly in that industry who will lose their jobs. Uh, their communities uh, will be uh, severely, have severe impact on their communities because there's lots of businesses in that area that rely on, on the industry to survive. Uh, and mm. then there's the real personal issue. Like we had a, a worker who said that uh, when they wound out, when they privatised the industry down in the Latrobe Valley, the value of his house dropped by over half overnight. So it's quite a profound economic impact. So we think that the um, transition needs to be planned. Uh, it needs to be done industry-wide, not just workplace by workplace. And that there are measures you can put in place that will mitigate the impact on the workers and their communities for the industry. And the only way you can do that really is by putting in an independent authority that can oversee the closure or the winding down and do it properly. So uh, we're asking for that, um, that body to be implemented by the federal government. And then if other industries undergo similar change, then such an authority can uh, oversee that, that um, yep. change as well. Yep. Yep. It would be great to talk more on that, but of course, um, yeah, the big news is um, the Fair Work Commission announced um, Sunday penalty rates are to be cut for retail and fast food workers. Um, these aren't the best, obviously these aren't the best paid workers in the country, and so what can you say about what these cuts will mean for these people? Uh, we think these cuts are devastating. We are really very, very disappointed by the decision by the Commission. Uh, this is the biggest pay cut since the Depression era when wages across the board were cut by 10%. So it's going to have a vast impact on, well, we think directly around 750,000 workers uh, who will lose anything from $2,000 a year up to $6,000 a year. It's sort of spanning out that looking between four and five will be the average. Now, that's a lot of money for someone who's on a very low wage. And these are, as you said, the lowest paid people in the country. You know, the impact, it would be devastating. Imagine losing uh, $4,000 a year out of your income. That's, you know, that's your registration, your internet, that's just being able to meet the rent or the mortgage payments. It's, it's going to be really devastating. Um, yeah, I guess the business lobby reckon, you know, that they argue that this is good for the economy and will create jobs. You know, how can it be good for the economy when wages are stagnating or going backwards for the majority of the population? It's such a bad argument. You're right. Your question's spot on. It's a bad argument from so many angles. We know that wages growth is the lowest they've ever been at the moment, and we've got even the Reserve Bank governor saying that con low consumption and the inability to save is one of the biggest problems the economy is facing. Uh, and yet, in the face of that, we're seeing the Fair Work Commission cut wages. Secondly, it won't create jobs. There's no way this will create jobs because the poor buggers whose pay is going to be cut. Well, you know... They're going to have to work extra shifts. They might have to get a second job. They are going to actually soak up any growth that there might be, that there might be, uh, in, in the labour market for, because of this. And the Commissioner himself said at best there will be a modest change in jobs, but it's very, very difficult to tell if that's the case. If you look around the world where wages have been cut dramatically, go to New Zealand, for example, where about a decade ago they cut penalty rates. The effect on the economy was absolutely terrible. Wages plummeted, inequality grew, labour productivity fell. Uh, in fact, they had to legislate after a while to raise wages. So there's no sense in this. None. No one wins. It's a nonsense argument, except we think, you know, businesses will be making a bigger profit. 
Um, now, Jed, it would be remiss not to mention this. Um, you'd no doubt be aware that a rebel retail and fast food workers union has been set up. Um, they've got an image during the rounds on social media that views the decision to cut Sunday penalty rates um, in the context of the incumbent union, the SDA, signing enterprise bargain agreements that left half a million workers across the country being paid less than the award. Um, so what's your view of this rebel union being set up? And do you accept that a lot of people view the SDA as, as being part of the problem? Well, this is um, a democracy and, you know, people are allowed to take the reins and, and do things that they feel in their heart of hearts is right. And if that's what they feel they are doing, then, um, you know, all power to them. And I think that in the long run, it will play out. It may be for the best. Um, it may just, you know, mean that people just get tired of squabbling unions and don't join any unions, but it may not be. So... I think we, you know, we need mm. to watch and see and uh, keep a brief on how that goes. Yeah, right. Uh, and is this the start of your right to work round two? Can we expect to see um, Sunday protests, strikes, other industrial action that the ACTU is uh, getting behind to, to fight back against these pay cuts? I tell you, this is going to be huge. Malcolm Turnbull had an opportunity to stop these cuts. He could have intervened. He could have made a submission. He could have gone to the Commission and said, let's take penalty rates out of the equation, out of your consideration. He did none of those things. He sat back because he knows that this is exactly what big business wants. And, you know, there's at least 60 members of his parliament who've spoken up and said they think penalty rates should go. And we're going to make sure that everybody in this country lays the blame for this squarely on the shoulders of Malcolm Turnbull. For sure. And do you think this is the thin edge of the wedge? Like, if, if they get away with these cuts, can you see that being spread to other industries? Like, I know that you, you're from the nurses' union originally. I am, yeah. Uh, and a lot of nurses, they do Sunday shifts. That's part of their, you know, that's part of your day-to-day -day budget. You know you're going to be getting those Sunday shifts. You know that you're getting your Sunday penalty rates. So do you think this is something that, that could be spread uh, and spread to the rest of the weekend? Absolutely. I reckon as we speak, uh, the employers in those other industries are sharpening their pencils and getting their submissions ready because there will be a full-on attack after this. This is, you know, this is really that pinprick that will turn into a deluge, I think. And, you know, we have to stop it now. We have to nip it in the bud. We have to make sure that this decision is reversed. We have to make sure that people who are going to lose, well, who are potentially going to lose pay are protected. And ultimately, we've got to put the system back straight. And, yep, I think you're right. Other people are going to be looking at this and rubbing their hands. All right. Well, um, I'm sure you've got a lot of uh, other interviews to get to. Um, yep. Thank you so much for talking to us here at 3CR this morning, Jed. My pleasure. And uh, we'll be keeping an eye on this campaign to get these savage cuts uh, overturned. So okay. Thanks for your time. Your I appreciate arm. it. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All Jed Thank Carney you. there. Jed Carney from the uh, uh, the president of the Australian Council of Trade Unions there and uh, foreshadowing that it's going to be quite a uh, fight back against the Fair Work Commission's decision to cut Sunday penalty rates for some of the lowest paid workers in the country in uh, retail, fast food and uh, pharmaceutical industries. All right, you are listening to Greenleaf Radio on 3CR. And pretty soon, <clears throat> we're going to be talking to Gemma Weedall, uh, who's been involved in the Repower Port Augusta campaign over in South Australia. 
Okay. Um, so you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, before we move on to our final um, interview for the program, um, I'll just share some brief um, news stories um, from the Green Left Weekly. Um, the federal government um, has announced um, changes to Centrelink's controversial automated debt recovery system. Um, these changes include no longer demanding immediate payment from people who dispute a debt, um, dispute a debt, allowing people to use bank statements instead of hard to obtain payslips to prove their income, making it easier to contact Centrelink, and allowing people to bypass the MyGov portal to review their debt. Um, but of course, um, unions, community groups, Labor, the Greens, and GetUp have all warned the changes do not address the fundamental flaws of the system. Um, the debt recovery system has faced complaints. Um, it is wrongly accusing issuing debts and forcing recipients to prove they're innocent. Um, there's just a quick announcement that Lex Watton, who's a First Nations activist, will contest the state seat of Townsville as an independent in the yet-to-be-announced Queensland ele- election. Um, to give you some context, um, Watton was jailed for two years for his role in the Palm Island riots of 2004. More recently, the federal court found that police breached um, the Racial Discrimination Act after the death of Cameron Marge, but the Queensland government has appealed the ruling. It was this appeal that spurred him into action. By running for the state election, I'm hoping to make the police more accountable and address wider problems, including Aboriginal deaths in custody, he said. Okay, so we have, um, we're ready. So we have, um, Gemma Weedle on the line right now. Yes, so Gemma is a member of the Socialist Alliance and has run as a Socialist Alliance candidate in the 2010 federal elections and has also been with the Climate Emergency Action Network South Australia and uh, Repower Port Augusta. And Repower Port Augusta have an ongoing campaign to get a concentrating solar thermal power plant built uh, with dispatchable power that can run around the clock and pump out power when it's needed. Welcome, Gemma. Hey, how you going? Really good. Um, so, uh, what's going on over in SA? You've been uh, copping some serious attacks from the federal government for the crime of having a fair few wind farms and, and so on. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting time in South Australia with our energy market. Um, we've been having quite a few blackouts recently, which um, I guess the, the conservative media and some, some politicians have been loving to use as a opportunity to bash renewables, despite there being really no feasible connection at all between these two. Um, yeah, so we've got Australia, South Australia has quite a large percentage of renewable energy, mostly from wind farms. Um, but also quite a lot of household solar. Uh, we also have gas power stations, and and recently the coal-fired power station up in Port Augusta was shut down. Um, that was an old power station, very polluting, um, but unfortunately there's been no transition for the community up there. It's just been shut down. They've been left high and dry, um, so we've been calling on the replacement to be a solar thermal plant. Um, but yeah, at the moment, moment, in the meantime, sorry, we've been getting a lot of slack from federal government, um, blaming renewables, even though it, it was found later that he was given the direction that there was actually no link between renewables and the blackouts. It's obviously a political manoeuvring there. Hmm. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, the real cause of the blackouts, I think, has been the privatisation of our energy grid. Just when you have a grid that's run for profit uh, and it's been played around by companies trying to make the most money rather than provide you know, affordable energy to people, 
uh, you're going to get a situation where, you know, it's not really the best outcome. And obviously we had some big storms that caused some energy infrastructure, some towers were knocked down. So they were going to, you know, that's what was those causes of the blackout and that was going to happen, whether it was caused by, renew- you know, whether we had renewable energy or, or gas. So, yeah, really tenuous links there being drawn by our federal and local politicians, which is pretty disappointing. And there's an article by Renfrey Clark in uh, Green Left Weekly uh, and at Green Left Online, and it's looking at uh, price gouging by the uh, by the privatised electricity companies, and in particular the the way that they will kind of just operate on the brink of supplying enough energy to stop blackouts from happening, because it's at that brink that they're able to attract high prices for their uh, electricity. Uh, yeah, that's it. It's all about maximising and the price they can get for energy. And the market is really quite illogical and not a very sensible way to provide power to people. And, you know, under a capitalist system, an energy system is designed to make a profit first. And if it if it provides energy to people, that's a bonus. But, you know, it's not <laughs> too bad. Hmm. Uh, and when the uh, recent blackouts earlier this year happened, sort of more localised load-shedding event, I think it was referred to, um, the the Labor Premier in South Australia, Jay Weatherill, came out and he was quite fired up and he was basically saying, why was the Pelican Point gas-fired power station not turned on? And he, he basically threatened... Uh, to nationalise or otherwise have some sort of s- strong um, state controls on how those power stations operate. What's is 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 he just talking, or do you think that's serious? Like, what's going on there? Yeah, it's probably the best thing I've heard Jay Weatherill say in quite a while. <laughs> um, <laughs> usually, he's on about nuclear and um, gas. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean that was another example of when you don't have a planned energy system, it's just quite chaotic and left in the market and it was definitely a failure and Pelican Point did fail to come on. Um, we haven't heard any haven't heard any real follow up in terms of action from that. I imagine it was just a bit of a bit of us talking, but I mean we would very much welcome Jay's suggestion to nationalise the um the energy sector. I think it would make a lot of difference and I'm sure it would have a lot of public support. A lot of people have been blaming the privatisation of ETSA that occurred, you know, a couple of decades ago um, for all of these, this real decline in the energy provision um, and in maintenance and in, you know, keeping prices reasonable. So, you know, I've, I'm not sure it's going to happen, but I would definitely support any calls for that to happen. Hmm. Uh, now, back to Repower Port Augusta, the, uh, there was a video came out in September of last year and you've actually got some of the former power station workers from Alinta, from the coal-fired power station that got sh- shut down, who are part of this campaign to get the solar thermal plant uh, built. So that's got a real yeah. transition focus, yeah? Yeah, it's a really diverse campaign that really is centred around local people and driven by them. So we've got former power station workers, we've got doctors and nurses, we've got teachers and a broad range of community members that are active um, and the local council up there is really supportive as well. Um, and they've been calling for this for years now. Um, we knew the power station was set to close. It wasn't a surprise. So it's 
it's really disappointing that there was no transition plan put in place for these workers and now they've just been left high and dry really so these workers are all skilled really skilled workers that could be quite easily transitioned to a, to work in a solar thermal power plant and that project would bring jobs to the area it would alleviate the health problems it would really help that regional community that's really struggling at the moment with the loss of a lot of a lot of employment um, I mean, it's a great idea all around, and it's been sitting on the desk of these politicians for you know, about five years now, and it's really time that they just step up and make it happen and you know, show some leadership and really be there for the community that so far they haven't been. Mm. And the other benefit, and perhaps why the Liberals feel so uh, threatened and feel the need to attack the renewables industry in South Australia at the moment, is if this thing was built, that would be a really good... Um, I guess, uh, technology to partner with the existing fleet of wind farms in South Australia, yeah? Yeah, they complement each other really well because it could the solar thermal with storage could provide the baseload energy, to re- which could replace the coal or gas, and then the winds could fill in the peaks. So when there's, you know, lots of wind, that could be a cheap source of energy, um, but then when at times when it's not windy... Um, the solar thermal can provide that base load and even through the night it can provide 24-7 storage, um, which is, which can be released. It's dispatchable energy, so it can really, really complement well with the wind, with the peaks and troughs. Hmm. And what's the, uh, state of the campaign and what's the sort of, what's coming up? Because I know there's a election in South Australia in 2018 and the opposition, the Liberal Party, have said that they support building this power station at Port Augusta, yeah? So the final domino to fall in place, as it were, is for actually Jay Weatherill and the Labor state government to say, OK, we're going to make this thing happen. Is that is that correct? Is that where we're up to? Yeah, pretty much. Before the last federal election, pretty we managed to get pretty much all of the parties to come out and make supportive comments about solar thermal um, both at the local and federal level, including Malcolm Turnbull, actually, which um, he seems to have, um, yeah, switched his his word there. Um, <laughs> but both local uh, parties pledged support for it, but they haven't put their money where their mouth is and done anything to make it happen. Um, so at the moment, the Repower Port Augusta campaign is is really putting the pressure on Jay Weatherall because at the moment the state government's deciding whether to buy their power from solar thermal or gas um, through a power purchase agreement and they're expected to make that decision within the next few months. Um, there's been indications lately that they're leaning towards new gas for South Australia, which obviously wouldn't be the right direction, mm. um, just a kind of band-aid fix. Um, so we're really kind of trying to keep up the pressure on Jay Weatherall to make the right choice there and do what the public wants, which is solar thermal and Port Augusta. And we have a bit of a um, statewide vote that's happening online for people to decide whether they want solar thermal or gas but certainly in the lead up to the state election we will be putting the hard word on both pol- on both parties to to make them come up with something really concrete concrete um, commitments for, to build solar thermal in Port Augusta rather than just lip service that they've been giving it so far hmm. uh, and I've We'll probably have to wrap it up pretty soon. I've been involved in some campaigns against uh, the coal industry in Newcastle, and sometimes it can feel a little bit like like 
you're in a smaller city and you're a bit away from where a lot of the political decision making happens um and I don't know, I've, I've at times felt like it'd be really good if there was some solidarity rallies in some of the big cities. Um, how can people uh, support Repower Port Augusta? Because I think it would have national significance. If, if this campaign can be won, that's going to be really good for the climate movement nationally. Yeah, absolutely. And that could kick off solar thermal pipes being built around the country once we have that technology up and running here like it is in some other countries around the world. Um, so, yeah, would love some any support and solidarity we can get from other states. Um, you can jump on the repowerportaugusta.org website or, or follow it on Facebook um, to keep up to date with what's happening and obviously read Green Left for updates. Yep. Um, and, yeah, any support would be great, especially around some pivotal moments. We always put out calls for action online and, yeah, let you know what's happening so you can support when you can. We'd love, we'd love some solidarity. That'd be great. Yeah, we could... All right. Well, um, yeah, keep up the good work, and we'll, uh, we might even get you back on the show. Uh, yeah, next time there is a sort of a turning point in the campaign. You're listening to Community Radio. 3CR. 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 
Um, the declaration of areas are state lands that can only be used by Israelis and even nature reserves from which Palestinians are forbidden. Responses around the world to the regularisation bill passed on February 6 have been muted. No leader or foreign minister has really challenged the tired orthodoxy of the two-state solution. However, a dramatic ex- exception came on February 15th when US President Donald Trump used a joint press conference with Netanyahu on February and to seemingly imply support for a one-state solution in which you know Israel exercised total control over historic Palestine. Of course, being Trump, the actual meaning of his statement was unclear. One interpretation of Trump's um, garbled comments um, was support for, a sh- um, for officially establishing what increasingly exists on the ground, one state with two race system, two race different systems, one or apartheid, as many observers later. later. Um, and, of course, um, for their part, you know, um, she writes here about other international responses. Germany, France, Britain have issued cautious statements about the dangers posed to the two-state solution by the new law and growth of Israeli sentiments. European um, Union residents came close to outright condemnation by warning that the law would stretch a single state, but with very different rights and consequences for Israeli versus Palestinian citizens. Um, I think that's all I really have time for. You can read more of the article on greenleftweekly.org.au. And thanks for the fantastic program. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. All right. And thanks to all our guests um, for being on our program. Um, Yes. Especially uh, Jed. Jed Carney. Uh, Jed Carney. Uh, ACTU, Stephanie Cousins and, and Gemma. And uh, it's been a very good program and I yeah. hope listeners tune in um, for next week. Indeed. All right, catch you then. Stick around for Beyond Zero Emissions. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper. Green Left Weekly provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to Green Left Weekly and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 634 206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Thank you for listening. You are tuned to 3CR Community Radio 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.